0: All right, Jesse, last week's episode was such a sad story of
1: addiction. What are we talking about this week? Today, we are covering the rise of famous fashion house Gucci and the family squabbles, disastrous divorces, and murderous jealousies that almost caused its downfall. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about imagined empires, real deaths, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Pod and on Facebook by searching
0: Love Murder Podcast.
1: And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. As usual, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening and reviewing and doing everything that you've done. And I genuinely love your messages so much. So keep the DMs and the Facebook messages coming because it really does brighten our days. You're so sweet. (laughs) It's (laughs) true though. It's so true.
0: No, everyone's been very kind.
1: Yes, very kind, having interesting suggestions. So
0: it is the holiday season. So if you are feeling giving, You know, Jesse would always love a review.
1: The greatest present that I I could get. Yes, we have quite the story today. We will be discussing the Gucci murder, which is soon to be a major motion picture. So I, I think we should just jump right in. What do you say? Please. The name Gucci is now synonymous with luxury, wealth, and style. Even more than that, it has entered the common vernacular with the phrase, everything's Gucci, meaning it's all good. Urban Dictionary says that to be all Gucci or good is a wonderful thing indeed. But before the company became a mainstay of the fashion world, launching some of the most sought after designer products and outfitting celebrities and the rich and famous around the globe, Gucci was just a man. Yes, in 1921, a hardworking merchant named Guccio Gucci had just <laughs> achieved his legit Guccio achievement. So Gucci. amazing. Mm-hmm. Had just achieved his lifelong dream of opening a high end leather product shop by nearby Florence's most elegant street, Via Tornabuoni. Are we getting Italian accents today? Because that's amazing. <laughs> That's that's all I can do. (laughs) And forgive my pronunciations, everyone. An area now known for its luxury fashion stores and as the street where the Negroni cocktail was created in the 1920s. Guccio had developed an eye for the finer things in life while working as a teenager in the Savoy Hotel in London. It was there that he became fascinated with the craftsmanship of the fine leather luggage he carted for the wealthy and well to do. He knew that he could outdo them all. After saving his money and acquiring an impeccable taste in luxury goods, Guccio returned to his hometown of Florence, where he eventually began selling high-end leather products from Tuscan manufacturers, as well as English and German imports, until he was able to open a small workshop and began to design and manufacture his own goods. Alongside his sons, Guccio built an empire only to have it devolve into a nightmare of backstabbing, regret, betrayal, love lost, and even murder. Drama. There is so much drama in this episode. I am telling you. So while the Gucci name still reverberates throughout global society, for one member of the Gucci family, the price of wealth and fame was his life done in by a murderous mastermind who's seethed with greed and jealousy. Man, this family is a mess, which just goes to show that you can have all the brilliance, all of the entrepreneurial energy, money, and power in the world, and you can still have a messy family life. You can still be a hot mess for sure hmm Nobody's perfect. So the book that we're using today as our primary source is The House of Gucci by Sarah Gay Forden, which is soon to be a major motion picture directed by Ridley Scott. And so she went real, real deep in this book. It's kind of complicated. She starts the entire book with a family tree so you can keep track of all the various Gucci's. So what I'm going to do, guys, is make sure I actually get the Instagram up as soon as this episode drops. So if you get a little confused, head on over to our Instagram and check out the family tree that I'm going to post. How many times did you reference it? I went back and forth a couple times and I really did my darndest to streamline all of the family and the names and the relationships. So hopefully I can keep you on track. If you have any questions, Andy, just stop as you are the voice of the people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you did an amazing job. I'm very excited. (laughs) Thank you. You're so sweet. I'm really excited about this episode, guys. It's going to be great. So let's get back to Guccio, who started it all. In 1902, Guccio married a single mother and a dressmaker named Ada when he was 21 and she was 24. The couple went on to have five additional children. So there was Ada's firstborn son from her first marriage, and then also they had four boys and one girl. Sadly, one of the boys died during childhood. The surviving children were all put to work in the store and were tutored in the arts of hard work, commitment to excellence, how to run a business, and of course, how to charm a customer. Son, Aldo, was particularly adept at being an entrepreneur and pushed his father into business expansion that would ultimately make Gucci the globally renowned brand that we know today. Aldo was a devilishly charming young man with firebrand energy who became... Quite the ladies' man. It soon got him in trouble with his father, though. And Guccio mostly stayed out of his son's business. He's like, if they want to run around with girls, that's fine. You know, he probably wouldn't feel the same way about his daughter, of course.
0: No, of course not. An
1: Italian dad. No, no way. But, you know, he let his sons be boys or, you know, whatever until the exiled Princess Irene of Greece. Came to him, and she happened to be Gucci's best customer. She was living in Florence. And she said, hey, your son is all over my servant, my English servant, Olwyn, who was like a 18-year-old redhead British girl. And I'm responsible for her and making sure that she's not sullied <laughs> while she is under my, you know, tutelage and service. So tell your son to back off. So when Guccio went to Aldo and said, hey, buddy, there's a million fish in the sea. You don't have to, you know, screw the fish that feeds us. He said, you know what, dad? I love her. I'm going to marry her. And he was so committed that he proposed to Alwyn on the spot. But it turns out that Alwyn was already pregnant. (laughs) Oh, my God. And how old was Aldo? I think he was only a little bit older. So he's like in his very early 20s. And I think she was 18 or 19. So yeah, the couple went on to have three sons in total. Oh my God. Yeah. Unfortunately, throughout the years, the relationship kind of fell apart, at least the romantic side of it. They remained... Legally married for a very long time, but they did produce those three sons together. He always took care of her financially, and she actually turned out to be a huge badass. In World War II, she ended up working with Irish priests to help Allied prisoners of war escape Europe. Wow. Yeah. So she was cool as shit. Guccio's youngest son, Rodolfo, was less inclined to go into the family business and instead had a passion for film. When he was 17, he was discovered by an Italian director and began an acting career using the pseudonym Maurizio Dancora. During the shooting of one of his early films, he met a vivacious and free spirited actress named Alessandra Winkelhausen, known professionally as Sandra Ravel, in a film in which she played a starlet who mistakenly enters the wrong hotel room and gets into bed with a man and then falls in love with them of course
0: of course i mean like all the times that i've like accidentally stumbled into a hotel room and fallen asleep <laughs> in bed with a random man that's like the only thing that can happen right
1: yeah it's the classic classic, classic meet cute i mean there's some people you like know do online cute. dating some people just you just stumble into the wrong hotel room and bed
0: And don't notice a body there.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So in life, as in the movie, the two fell headlong into love, getting married in a romantic Venetian ceremony in 1944 and giving birth to their sole heir, Maurizio, named in honor of Rodolfo's screen name. Of course. During World War II, when leather was scarce due to trade embargoes imposed on Italy, the Gucci's created one of their most iconic pieces and best sellers of all time, the Gucci canvas bag with their signature print. So it was like the prototype of, you know, the Gucci with the little dots and the G's yeah. that like tan and brown. So they created that because they didn't have enough leather to do their like fine leather handbags. Okay. And it is still to this day, like their number one seller. Of course. With the success of the less expensive canvas bags, they began selling well-made but less costly pieces like belts and wallets to phenomenal success. The post-war boom was incredible for the Gucci's because people were tired of having gone without during the war rationing, and now they wanted luxury. Gucci was actually one of the first designers that were associated with like a real brand of wealth and taste and luxury. Yeah. Guccio passed away in 1953, leaving the company in the hands of three of his sons, Aldo, Rodolfo, and their brother Vasco. With Aldo taking the business lead, they opened stores all over the world throughout the 60s and 70s. There were stores in Milan, Rome, New York, Palm Beach, Beverly Hills, London, Paris, and more.
0: It's such a bigger deal back then when like the world
1: was so much bigger, you
0: know? Like it's so crazy to think in the 60s having stores globally. Well, they
1: talked about... How he started opening stores globally, like in the 40s and the 50s, and how long it took to get from like Italy to New York, how you'd yeah. be like, ah, you'd have to stop in a million places. It could be to take 20 hours, you know?
0: Yeah. And like doing construction and build outs and like, I mean, the whole thing, the whole process, I mean, everything is just so intense and fast now, but imagining it happening back then, it had to have been such an arduous process.
1: Absolutely. And while Aldo was proving to be a genius marketer, Rodolfo created some of the brand's iconic pieces, like the Flora scarf designed specifically for Grace Kelly, and he also revitalized the bamboo handle bag that remains popular today. Gucci also put out men's and women's loafers, shoes that were renowned for their sleek look and comfortable fit. Frank Sinatra reportedly had over 40 pairs. Of
0: course, it's so chic
1: so chic. In July 1969, the label put out their first apparel line and Aldo made sure it was just sporty enough for everyday use. Elegance is like manners, he used to say. You can't be polite only on a Wednesday or Thursday. If you are elegant, you should be elegant every day of the week. Oh my God, amazing. I <laughs> it. Aldo was something else. By the 1970s, Gucci was everywhere, with JFK even calling Aldo the first Italian ambassador to the United States. And miraculously, they had built it up as a completely family-owned business. But the drama was coming. And when it began, the hits just kept coming until someone ended up murdered. So one of the first big schisms to rupture the Gucci family was between Rodolfo and his 22-year-old son, Maurizio. Maurizio's mother, Alessandra, had died when Maurizio was only five years old. And as a result, the elder Gucci was tremendously protective, doting, and controlling of his only son and link to his beloved wife. Yeah. Rodolfo had been so shaken by the loss of his wife when they were, I think they were like, Both 41 or something. They were very, very young. That he vowed to never remarry again and he didn't. That's so sad. Yeah, he spent his life loving her and he also spent his life creating memories. Like he was so obsessed with film that ahead of his time, he videoed everything. Yeah. And so he spent most of his life working on this masterpiece of a documentary about his life. And it was so many images of her and their family. Yeah, so he absolutely didn't remarry again. He just, he didn't want to focus on anyone else. He was grieving for her. And he also thought that any time that he spent on dating would be taken away from his son. And he couldn't bear that. As Maurizio grew into a tall, intelligent, and slightly awkward youth, Rodolfo was very proud of his son, who ultimately graduated from law school. But he was incredibly strict with him. He was very, very stingy with pocket money. At this point, do they have money yet? They have a lot of money already. Okay, cool. Yeah. So by the time he's 22, it's 1970. So they have done very well for themselves. They're already global. They're doing great. So I think Rodolfo really wanted to make sure that Maurizio wasn't spoiled, that he was a hard worker, that he worked for everything he had. And I also think, sadly, it was a little bit of an effort to control him. Rodolfo was obsessed with maintaining some sort of control over his son.
0: I mean, going to law school isn't easy. So that's a good practice and hard work.
1: Yeah. And he he really was a good kid. In the movie, Adam Driver plays him. And I do think that that's a very, like basically to me, he looks like Adam Driver, but with lighter hair and blue eyes. So it's kind of like if you mixed um, like a young Michael Caine with Adam Driver, I think that would be Maurizio perfectly. Okay. So, yeah, so he didn't really have a lot of experience with women because his dad made sure that he was focusing on his studies and learning the ropes at Gucci and not dating, obviously. So, in 1970, when he saw a tiny brunette firecracker with big violet eyes blow into a debutante party, he was instantly mesmerized. row. It is serious. Rattro. The 21-year-old's name was Patrizia, and she stood barely five feet tall with curves hugged generously by a tight red dress. Oh, my God. So Lady Gaga plays her in the film, and they look remarkably similar. She's, yeah, if you, like, basically gave Gaga full brunette-teased, like, 70s and 80s hair and a deep tan... It's just her. It just is. Wild. Yeah, they look so much alike. While Maurizio was awkward, stilted, and smitten, Patrizia was dramatic, charming, over-the-top, and flirtatious. It was a big personality and a little lady over here. It was absolutely love or lust at first sight for Maurizio. And Patrizia, who knew Maurizio was the heir to the famed House of Gucci— Of course she did. Played it exactly right. So usually women, of course, approached Maurizio. He had no idea what to do with a woman who wasn't. And so she could tell he was checking her out. So she just kind of like remained in his periphery and like didn't totally make eye contact, but made herself like laughing and available until he like finally had to work up the courage to come talk to her. Okay. Yeah, he was like driving her crazy and he was like asking all the people at the party who she was and what her deal was. So he finally walks up to her and he broke the ice by asking her if anyone had ever told her that she looked just like Elizabeth Taylor. And she replied, oh, I can assure you, I am much better. I was going to say... Yeah, she's got some sass on her. Sass. Super sass. Later, she said that she didn't immediately fall for Maurizio. In fact, she had been engaged to another man at the time of the party. But when she found out that after the party, Maurizio was walking around telling people he was in love with her, Whoa, she broke it dude, off. dude.
0: Like, like, pump the brakes, man. Right
1: away. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's nuts. So when she found out that, she was like, ooh baby. Okay. So she broke it off with her man and she began to date Maurizio. According to The House of Gucci by Gay Forden, friends of hers at the time said Patrizia never made it a secret that she not only wanted to marry a rich man, but a man with a name. Patrizia had been seeing a very rich industrialist who was a friend of mine, but he didn't have enough of a name for her mother. So Patrizia dropped him, a friend said. Maurizio was the exact type of fish Patrizia wanted to hook, and he was basically just throwing himself in her boat. Aware that his father would definitely not approve of the match or would not approve that he wanted to commit himself to a woman so seriously before he finished school, they ended up having somewhat of a secret relationship at first. When Rodolfo did discover that his son was having liaisons, With Patrizia behind his back, he went through the roof. Oh, no. Yeah, Rodolfo was not pleased, and he did not hold back in what he said. He told Maurizio that he had checked Patrizia out and talked to a bunch of people about her, and he did not like the sound of her one bit. He said, quote, I am told she is vulgar and ambitious, a social climber who has nothing in mind but money. Maurizio. She is not the girl for you.
0: And yeah, she's just trying to seal that Gucci bag. Yeah. You see what I did there with like the bag? That's good. That's great.
1: <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> so yeah, Maurizio did hate disappointing Rodolfo, but for once he was under a spell greater than his loyalty and obedience to his father. Papa, he said, I can't leave her. I love her. So Rodolfo tried everything. He tried to offer Maurizio trips to New York and other distractions. Models. Gifts, (laughs) model. Exactly. He's like, there's a million girls. Go to New York and hang out with Aldo and all the girls you can meet with him, you know? But Maurizio would not be swayed. He was like, I know it. She's the one for me. And nothing you can say is going to change my mind. Your favorite phrase, hook, line, and sinker. Absolutely. Finally, desperately, Rodolfo told him if he continued his relationship that he would disinherit Maurizio completely and kick him out of the house and Gucci as the company. But Maurizio stood up to his father probably for the first time ever and he packed his things in a Gucci suitcase, of course, (laughs) and he left. He said, fine, disinherit me.
0: But how did Patrizia feel about that if she was after the coin?
1: She took him. She took him. Let's talk about this little vixen that has fractured the illustrious Gucci family. Patrizia's mother was a petite redhead from Modena, an Italian town about two hours south of Milan named Silvana Barbieri, who waited tables at her father's family restaurant. When she was barely 18, she caught the eye of a man named Fernando Reggiano, then in his mid-50s, and the owner of a successful transport business based in Milan. The two began a years-long affair that produced Patrizia, born on December 2, 1948. Because Reggiano could not claim the child due to the fact that he was already married, yep. Silvana married a local man to provide the child with a last name. Just to give some propriety to Patrizia, it had nothing to do with romance. And in fact, very shortly after Patrizia was born, Fernando did move the mother and daughter to Milan and put them up in an apartment. Silvana would later say, I have been the lover, concubine, and wife of one man and one man only. Ah, Reggiano became a successful businessman and was widely respected in Milan. When his wife died of cancer in 1956, he moved Silvana and Patrizia into his home. Uh, Some years later, he quietly married Silvana and adopted Patrizia. So he adopted his own biological child. Good for you, sir. Good for you. (laughs) Like, yeah. There's, I guess, like, Patrizia always referred to him as her stepfather, but everybody who was in the know was like, no, that's your real dad. We know it. Reggiano spoiled Patrizia, giving her a white mink coat for her 15th birthday and a sports car when she turned 18. While Reggiano coddled Patrizia, Silvana groomed her. She had got them from Modena to Milan, and it was Patrizia's job to use her looks, intellect, and charm to reach the next social strata. That's why she was obsessed with a name. She didn't want money. She wanted the social standing. Yep. Patrizia was naturally intelligent, trilingual in Italian, English, and French, but she mostly liked to have fun. Classmates recalled that sometimes she'd come to class in the morning wearing her cocktail dress from the party the night before. So she was a little bit wild. Do you think she, like, didn't go home or, like – That's what they insinuated was that she just, like, partied yeah, she, all night. I could always, like, class. make it home
0: and, like, throw on some sweats, <laughs> you know?
1: I think she liked the attention. She yeah. liked people knowing she was out all night. She liked wearing the evening gown to school, yeah. you know? The Humanities. Yes. And she definitely raised eyebrows because there was talk of her going to a very fancy wedding wearing apparently a beautiful designer lavender dress. But everybody knew that she wasn't wearing anything underneath. How did they know? Did she tell everyone? I think she showed them. She showed them her vagina. (laughs) Potentially. Wow. potentially somehow it came out so i don't know if somebody saw or maybe she did just tell them but speaking of not wearing underpants to a wedding one time my dad brought his ex-girlfriend before my mom to my uncle bob's wedding so uncle bob and aunt sue you've met you know them and aunt sue is irish catholic so this was a fairly conservative wedding it's in the late 70s at this point and my dad brought this girl who was wild. She is like famous in our family for like the craziest ex-girlfriend. Craziest ex-girlfriend award? Definitely, 100%. I mean, she's in the family lore. And at this wedding on the dance floor, she started spinning around and she had this like twirly dress. So when she spun around, it like went up to her hips, you know? She was wearing nothing underneath. And everybody that was seated around the dance floor could see it. And this is the 70s. So I'm talking full bush and tush over here. Girl. We got a real whisker biscuit situation happening. So apparently she went to the restroom and all of my Aunt Sue's (laughs) bridesmaids (laughs) cornered her and they were like, look, you little bitch. (laughs) This is Sue's day. You're not going to be hanging that vagina all over her dance floor on her special day. You better sit down and stay down.
0: Seriously,
1: though. Like, yeah. And my dad was the best man, too. Uh, Okay, back to the story and away from uh, the taco and the chaco that was being seen in this episode. So some of Maurizio's friends tried to warn him that she might be just a little too provocative for him, but Maurizio would hear nothing bad about his love. He was completely all in. After Rodolfo and Maurizio fought, Rodolfo had the balls to call Fernando Reggiano and tell him to keep his daughter away from his son and that he knew Patrizio was only after his money, which he said she would only get over his dead body which is kind of how inheritance works, Rodolfo.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he did say also, though, that he was cutting off Maurizio, so she wouldn't get it anyways because he was going to cut his son off. Papa Reggiano was naturally offended and slammed down the phone. When Maurizio showed up later on his doorstep with his Gucci bag, he said to Patrizia and... You know, Papa Reggiano, I've lost everything. My father has gone crazy. He disinherited me. He offended both of you. I have nowhere to go. He said, Torre, Reggiano, I am still in school and I do not have a job. I am in love with your daughter and I would like to marry her, but I have nothing to offer. So Reggiano liked Maurizio, so he allowed him to move in and prove himself by working at his transport company while he was not in class. He said in time he would decide if Maurizio was worth his daughter's hand in marriage. Maurizio worked diligently and remained completely chaste while under the Reggiano's roof. He basically said any hanky-panky and you're out on your ass, buddy. Yeah. As the months went by, Reggiano grew to love Maurizio, saying it was a shame that Rodolfo had lost such a son, but he was grateful to have gained one. He gave his blessing, and the wedding date was set for October twenty eighth, 1972 almost two years after the couple's first meeting. Though Rodolfo and his son had not spoken since Maurizio left the house, he soon found out about the upcoming marriage. In his desperation, he went to the Cardinal of Milan to try to get him to stop the wedding. The Cardinal had a higher power to answer to than the Gucci's and told Rodolfo they were two young people in love and there was nothing he was going to do to stop the wedding. Nope. Patrizia and Maurizio were indeed wed in the social event of the season, though no Gucci's were present, not wanting to offend Rodolfo. Though delighted with his beloved new wife, I know, Maurizio was really, really devastated that his father and his entire family had missed the most important day of his life. That's two episodes in a row. That's such a bummer. It is so sad. Patrizia assured him the rift would be mended, and she began to lobby his uncle Aldo behind the scenes to reunite the two feuding Gucci's. Aldo had recently floated to the New York Times that he was looking for a successor. He said that his own three sons had settled in Florence and Rome, and they were really busy running their areas of Gucci, like a lot of the manufacturing and the design and stuff like that. And he didn't really actually think any of the three of his sons were fit to run the whole operation. Like the face of Gucci, yeah. Exactly. But he thought that maybe Maurizio could. Maurizio was smart. He had a law degree. He was elegant and well-mannered, which obviously was important to Aldo. Mm -hmm. He had a glamorous wife, and he had had the balls to stick up to his father, Rodolfo, which was important for Aldo, too, because he didn't want a guy that was just going to side with Rodolfo no matter what. He wanted somebody that would look out for the better of the company. Totally. Totally. After he decided, like, hmm, this could work for me, he strategically went to Rodolfo and convinced him, you know, he was getting older, that his son was the last family he had left, and it was the the only person that could remind him of his wife, you know? Like, life was too short to continue this rift. Yep. And I think by this point, Rodolfo had already realized it was a mistake. Okay. He had just been stubborn, you know? Okay. Yep. So he agreed, and Maurizio agreed to a reunion. And once they were together, it was like it never happened again. They got in the same room together, and they're just like, "I've missed you. The past is the past. Let's look forward." And once they got back together, too, Rodolfo behaved super graciously towards Patrizia. Aldo invited Maurizio to come to New York and learn how to run Gucci America, and Rodolfo actually paid for this crazy multi-million-dollar penthouse on Fifth Avenue for the couple. Wow. Yeah. Over the years, other gifts followed. He bought them another apartment in New York. He bought them a property in Acapulco. He brought them a cherry blossom farm in Connecticut and a duplex penthouse in Milan. Whoa. So Patrizia would later say that she believed that the generosity towards them was kind of a I'm sorry to her and also a thank you for kind of behind the scenes getting us back together, you know? Okay. In turn, the couple gave Rodolfo two beautiful granddaughters. Alessandra was born in 1976, named Rodolfo's late wife. Yeah. Which, of course, just endeared the child and the couple even more to Rodolfo. Yeah. And then they also had another baby girl named Allegra in 1981, which I love those names, Alessandra and Allegra. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Italian.
1: Very Italian. Maurizio was excelling at Gucci, and wealth flowed to the young family. They even ended up buying a gigantic 208-foot, three-masted yacht called the Creole that had once been owned by Greek tycoon Stavros Niarchos. They would put millions of dollars into refurbishing and designing the yacht, and it would become considered one of the most beautiful ships in the world. The 70s were a great time of expansion for Gucci. They opened stores in Japan and other foreign markets, as well as all over the U.S. They got into the watch business, and one of their watches actually made it into the Guinness Book of World Records for being the first watch to sell more than a million units in two years. Whoa. So the third brother who had been running the company with them, Vasco, died in the 1970s and Aldo and Rodolfo bought out his widow. So now basically they own the company 50% Aldo, 50% Rodolfo. Okay. And what turned out to be probably a mistake on Aldo's part, he decided to split 10% of his shares with his son's. So he had three sons and he decided to give them each 3.3% just so they would feel like they had ownership in the company before he passed away, you and know? You said that's a mistake? Kind of because you'll come to see that especially one of his sons we'll talk about later was very volatile. And if at any point one of his sons decided to double cross him, he could go over and make a deal with Rodolfo who hadn't given away any of his shares to Maurizio. So Rodolfo had 50%. So if one of the sons goes over with 3.3%, then guess who has the controlling vote with 53.3%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think Aldo just never imagined that his sons would ever backstab him, obviously, you know? And though money was just pouring in, or perhaps because of that, tensions ran really high between the Gucci men and infighting began to get vicious. Sarah Gay Forden went into the rivalries with a great deal of detail. And there was a lot of them. Oh, my God. But I'm going to use a quote from The Princess Bride for this one. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. (laughs) And Nego Montoya. So Paolo was one of Aldo's sons, and he was the one that I was talking about who was kind of the biggest troublemaker. He definitely stirred up the most drama. He constantly wanted more of a say in the design process and the running of the company. And after one big fight where he felt like his designs weren't being appreciated and they weren't listening to his ideas, he tried to use a Gucci like manufacturing warehouse to create his own line that he was going to call Paolo Gucci and sell like on his own and cheaply. So when the other Gucci's found out about this, they were like, uh, yeah. Oh, hell no. You're not going to cheapen our brand with your bullshit designs. So they weren't good designs. I mean, it's hard to say. I I didn't actually see them. Okay. The, The consensus was that he wanted to make Gucci more widespread by making things cheaper. Yeah. And so it was like, if You know, now everybody does it, but back then nobody did it. You wouldn't do like a deal with Target, you know? Like he wanted, he had something like that in mind. He's ahead of his time. He was ahead of his time. So I can't say that his, his designs were bad or anything. This was just what the other Gucci's thought. Yeah. So when they found out about how he was like covertly using Gucci materials to try to push his own line without any permission from the parent company... They were like, F this guy. So they hit him up with some lawsuits. And they basically tried to prevent him from using his own last name in any endeavor. So he can start his own business, his own fashion line, but he has to call it Paolo. He can't call it Paolo Gucci. They yeah, can't you know? use the last name. Okay. Exactly. So Paolo responded in kind, and by 1987, he had initiated over 10 lawsuits against Gucci, which included his father, uncle, brothers, and cousin. Okay, Paolo. Paolo, calm down. Meanwhile, Rodolfo and Aldo were constantly at each other's throats. So Rodolfo hired a brilliant young Harvard-educated Italian attorney named Domenico Sole to kind of be like the heavy on his side, obviously, Aldo had three sons and Rodolfo only had Maurizio. So board meetings could get kind of heated. And so Rodolfo kind of brought this guy in to be on his side, essentially. Okay,
0: but that's if you're bringing someone in to like mediate, they're not supposed to be biased.
1: Yeah. And he said he wasn't like really on Rodolfo's side. It was just that he was the only one who could stand up to Aldo. Apparently anyone else they've brought into this position, was completely run over by Aldo. He was very strong, opinionated, charming, didn't take no for an answer, and people had a hard time standing up to him, but not Domenico. Okay. So Aldo didn't like that, of course. He didn't like it that he couldn't, like, kind of run all over this guy. So he went to Paolo and was like, hey, look, your other two brothers are going to vote with me all the time, no matter what. I know we've had issues, you know, because you keep suing us and me, and that sucks. But I'd like to put all of that behind us so that you will vote with me against Rodolfo. But apparently in this negotiation about what Aldo was going to do for his son Paolo, it got so heated that Aldo actually threw a Gucci crystal ashtray at his face, narrowly missing it and smashing it on the office wall. Uh yeah. This is just the beginning do some of the damage that could have really injured Paolo. So the entire family around this time decided to make a deal with Paolo. So they're like, look, we will let you have more control and push your ideas about design and stuff if you please just stop filing lawsuits against us. Oh my God. But yeah, is that the, too much the to first, ask? Is that too much to ask? Can you please stop litigating? so we can try to run a company together. Yeah. So they did make a deal. So, you know, he had a lot of terms and conditions that he wanted and they were like, yep, yep, yep. We'll totally take care of that. But the first board meeting back went very poorly indeed. The scene is going to be wild in the movie. I can already tell. On July 16th, 1982, Basically, Paolo came in. He's like reinstated. He's excited to be there, but he wants to make all these big changes. So they're trying to right have away. a board meeting is right away. And he comes they're in having with a, a binder. B- <laughs> That's exactly what he did. Stop. And so he's like, I have a statement. I would like to read from this. And they're all like, oh, dude, really? Like, are you going there? And he got really mad because Domenico was the secretary of the meeting and he was supposed to be writing down the minutes and nobody cared what Paolo said. So he wasn't writing anything down.
0: Oh, so he's like, God.
1: why aren't you writing down what I'm saying? And everyone kind of was like, because we don't, we don't really care. And he yeah, got you're just really...
0: Here. You're just here because yeah. we're being polite.
1: <laughs> you're just here because we're being polite and we want you to stop suing us, please. And so everyone was just so over Paolo. And he got like completely irate. And he's like, I demand a record of this meeting. And when nobody was writing down the minutes, he took out his own tape recorder And he hit play. And then as it was recording, he began to rant a laundry list of grievances about the company. So at this point, Aldo yelled at him to turn off the tape recorder. And one of his other sons, Giorgio, like got up and actually ripped the tape recorder from Paolo's hands, which ended up inadvertently breaking it. So Paolo yelled at Giorgio, are you crazy? And then Aldo ran around the table to lunge at his son. And Maurizio ended up jumping in and putting Paolo in a headlock because he thought Paolo was going to attack either Giorgio or Aldo. Oh my God. Messy, messy, messy. This is like Jerry Springer brought to you by Gucci. Too much testosterone, dude. Aldo ended up reaching Paolo, who's now being held in a headlock, and he tried to wrestle the tape recorder from his hands, but somehow in the scuffle, Paolo got badly scratched and he began to bleed from the face. So when everyone saw the blood, of course, they were like, whoa, this got out of hand. Let's everybody cool down. But Paolo would not cool down. And the Gucci offices were above the Florence Gucci store, which is like one of their flagship stores. Of course. Yeah. So he ended up taking the elevator down into the store and then running around the store, talking to the customers and sales clerks going, look what they did. Look what happens at a Gucci board meeting. They tried to kill me. They tried to kill me.
0: So dramatic. So So dramatic. dramatic.
1: How many people were in the store? I mean, God knows. And they have to be like tourists and stuff. They're like, what is going on? This crazy man just came down with a bleeding face and is screaming. And he then went immediately to his doctor where he got everything photographed because you can guess where this was going. He started suing them again. Yep. Yep. For assault.
0: Exactly. Scratching
1: the face. At this time, I have to tell you how old these gentlemen were because this is so ridiculous. Aldo was 77 years old. Rodolfo was 70. Paolo was 51 years old. Stop it. Giorgio... 53. These are not young boys. (laughs) And Maurizio was the youngest at 34. But still, these are grown ass men behaving like this. Oh, my God. The press got wind of the drama and the new lawsuits. And I guess Paolo was also talking to the press about this. And everyone became absolutely fascinated with all of the drama. They started calling (laughs) the Gucci's Dallas on the Arno, a reference to a popular 1980s nighttime soap. And the story went totally global, with Jackie Onassis actually sending a famous one-line telegraph to Aldo that just said, why? And Prince Rainier of Monaco actually telegraphed them to ask them if he needed to mediate. Oh, my God. I mean, they do, though. They do. They need
0: help. (laughs) They need a mediator.
1: They do. That same year, Patrizia, Maurizio, and their girls moved back to Milan to be close to a cancer-stricken Rodolfo. Milan society was eager to welcome back Gucci's heir apparent, and Patrizia relished her role as Signora Gucci. Like, she was angling for the top position. This, the Gucci name in Milan especially, which is, you know, a fashion capital of the world was huge. So like everywhere she went, she got the best service. Everyone wanted to know what she was wearing. I mean, you can imagine. So crazy. So crazy. The Society pages called her the Joan Collins of Monte Napoleon, and she steered the already motivated Maurizio to greater prestige and fame. A friend recalled that Patrizio did really help Maurizio professionally. He said, "Well, Maurizio was shy, reserved, and awkward at public functions, she knew how to sparkle. Patrizia is the one who pushed the accelerator. She wanted Maurizio to become somebody. They're yin-yang for sure. 100%. When Rodolfo died on May 4th, 1983, at the age of 71, it was the end of an era. Maurizio inherited Rodolfo's entire 50% stake in the company, leaving him with the most shares and thus the most voting power. Patrizia, like a bedazzled and made-up Lady Macbeth, pushed Maurizio to take charge of Gucci once and for all. Maurizio's vision was to elevate the Gucci brand. He wanted to model it more after the French design house Hermès, So he's like, let's go real upmarket. And part of that was like getting rid of the less expensive canvas bags, which maybe wasn't a great choice because they represented a huge portion of his sales volume. Yeah. And let's be honest, those aren't cheap. They're not cheap today. I think like maybe back in the day they were relatively more affordable. Yeah. But now nothing was affordable, even remotely. I mean... They were selling like, you know, $10,000 crocodile skin bags and more. Like he was trying to go full Hermes with like the Birkins that cost like, you know, 50 grand or 100 grand or, you know, insane stuff. And that wasn't really what the company was built on, you know? Yeah. So that was his vision. And basically, he kind of wanted to force the whole company to adopt that vision. But Aldo was like, no, we're not going to do that. You're crazy. Don't come in here with your ideas, you young upstart. (laughs) So when it was discovered that Aldo had participated in massive tax fraud, illegally transferring millions of dollars from Gucci America to his own offshore account. Oh, my God. That was when Maurizio had the opportunity to oust Aldo. Aldo did actually end up having to spend uh, like a few months in prison for this, by the way. He had him by the balls at that point, huh? Exactly. So he aligned himself with none other than Paolo, who desperately needed money at the time. And they agreed that Paolo would vote alongside Maurizio to replace Aldo in exchange for 49% of a new Gucci licensing company that Paolo would get to, you know, design for. And there was also an agreement that eventually Maurizio would buy out. Paolo's 3.3% for $20 million. Okay. So he's like, I get to do what I want. I'm still making money and I get a nice little payday. All I have to do is betray my father. NBD. Easy. (laughs) Easy. No problem. He threw that ashtray at me and I have never forgotten it. In a shocking coup at the next board meeting, Paolo and Maurizio voted to reduce Aldo to an honorary presidential title while Maurizio became the chairman of Gucci globally. Very rough. Aldo was so embarrassed, and he was really saddened because he had kind of plucked. Rizio as his successor, and he had trained him as such. And he did expect that he was going to be the chairman until he died, and then Rizio would take over. So to have him be ousted like this when he still felt like he had a lot to give the company was very embarrassing for him.
0: Yeah. And he also was generous with giving ownership to each of his sons while he was still alive. I mean, the whole thing is just like gross.
1: And then, then Paolo backstabbed yeah. him too. Absolutely. Yeah. So Maurizio did inherit quite the financial mess, caused not in a small part by some of Aldo's shady dealings, though. So he wasn't perfect here either. He appointed Domenico de Sol as the president of Gucci U.S. to help him untangle the mess that had become the Gucci cash flow. In an effort to right the ship while also implementing his vision for Gucci, Maurizio began to work 12 to 15-hour days, and he traveled constantly for work. So he had always previously turned to Patrizia for business advice, for life advice. Like, I mean, they had been one of those couples that is a true partnership. Okay. But now, not only was he never around, so he was basically an absent father and husband, he shunned her business advice in favor of his advisors, who were Domenico and another man named Pallone. And this really, really, really hurt Patrizia. Yeah. Yeah. And she didn't handle it very well. Like she, instead of communicating that she was upset, she just flew off the handle. She was constantly yelling at him. She was constantly berating him. She was always like pushing her own agenda. She was trying to intimidate him or force him into doing things by like just demanding her own way rather than saying, I'm absolutely really hurt in my heart that you're not you know, listening to me and that you're not bringing me on this journey with you, you know? Yeah. She didn't know how to communicate any of her emotions. No, she did not. So Rodolfo had actually warned Patrizio on his deathbed that he knew and she knew that Maurizio was going to be the head of Gucci someday one way or another. And he said, I just want to prepare you that that type of power and wealth changes men. And Maurizio might become a different man after he does that. So kind of be careful what you wish for, you know? Patrizia had heard it, but she was like, not my Mao. That's what she called him, Mao. Not my Mao. Like she, this girl had him wrapped around her finger. I mean, he had been willing to walk away from his whole fortune and family legacy for her back in the day. Yeah. She never imagined a world in which he would just turn his back on her, you know? Yeah,
0: but that was before he had all the money.
1: Exactly, exactly. And in, like I said, she didn't handle it exactly well. Obviously, this was an extremely stressful time in his life. So basically, what people close to the situation said was that Patrizia really beat him up, recalled DeSol. And this is from interviews for The House of Gucci by Sarah Gay Forden. She set him up against his uncle, his cousins, or anybody else she didn't feel like was treating him properly. At Gucci events, she would say things like, I didn't get offered champagne first. That means they don't respect you. Oh, no. Yeah, not the way to go about this, Patrizia. No. She became a real nuisance, agreed Pallone. She was an ambitious woman, and she wanted a role in the company. I told her to stay out. No wives allowed. And she hated me for it. No wives allowed. You guys could
0: have used some women in there, to be honest.
1: Truly, truly. I think that the Sausage Fest board meeting that happened maybe would have been taken down a notch if you had some, you know, X
0: X, X imagine chromosomes up <laughs> having in that piece. Like a, what was that? What was that movie? Not Rugrats. There was a movie like The Little Rascals where it's like, no girls allowed.
1: Yeah, that's exactly yes. what it sounded like. But I guess she was also kind of a disaster. She wanted to design a special collection of high-end jewelry. So she did, because of course, Maurizio let And it was called like Oro Crocodilo. And okay.
0: it was essentially
1: like gold fancy jewelry that was stamped with like a crocodile print. And it was like really chunky and clunky. And the price tag was absurdly high. And I guess like none of it sold. Like literally the store clerks were like, "Ugh, what do we do with this? Nobody's going to buy this shit. (laughs) So it was very rude of them to say no wives allowed. But she wasn't exactly like super talented in the jewelry design field here. Okay. He wanted Patrizia to tell him bravo all the time. Instead, she reprimanded him constantly. She just became unpleasant. De Sol and Pallone replaced Patrizia as his trusted advisors, and she deeply resented them. Driven by her own ambition, she envisioned herself as the strong woman behind the weak man, but then suddenly found herself on the sidelines. Maurizio became unstable, arrogant, and unpleasant, Patrizia recalled. He stopped coming home for lunch. Weekends, he went off with his geniuses. He gained weight and dressed badly. <laughs> oh. burn. (gasps) Uh,
0: He surrounded
1: himself with unsubstantial people. Pallone was the first. Bit by bit, he changed my Maurizio. I realized it when Maurizio stopped telling me things. His tone grew detached. We spoke less. We grew cold and impassive with each other. On Wednesday, May 22nd, 1985, Maurizio packed a suitcase and told Patrizia that he was going to Florence for a few days for work. He kissed his daughters and he laughed. They ended up speaking on the phone the next day, and everything seemed normal. However, the next afternoon, a mutual friend stopped by the Milan house to tell Patrizia that Maurizio wasn't coming back. Not that weekend. Not ever. What? Uh Uh-huh. Patrizia was stunned. Her beloved husband of over 13 years had just ghosted her. And that's in like 85. So like you can actually ghost someone. No, there was no terms for it. You just, you can't just stop speaking to your wife. So that was May 22nd. Basically, she found out about it on like May 24th, I guess. Wow. They did end up speaking again in July only because Gucci had sponsored a polo match. And apparently Patrizia had some role in the polo match. So they had to go and pretend everything was fine. And during that week, Patrizia was obviously extremely pissed, but she really, to the very end, very much loved Maurizio and always kind of held out hope that he was going to get his senses back and come back to her, you know? But what? Wh- who was is, who is this woman who told her? How did she know that he was gone? It was a guy. It was a, a, a male doctor. Yeah. It was actually a doctor friend of theirs, and he brought Valium. So he basically was like, so Maurizio's... Leaving you, and here's some Valium. You might need it. Real nice. <laughs> Real nice. Thanks, bud. Thanks for looking out. And so, essentially, when they were together over this week in July, she just could not figure out why he was leaving her. And, you know, she obviously suspected that there was another woman. And he just kept saying, I need my freedom, my freedom, my freedom. Don't you understand? First, I had my father who told me what to do, and now I have you. I have never been free in my entire ah. life. He said, I didn't enjoy my youth, and now I want to do what I want to do. So he did explain that he was absolutely not leaving her for another woman, but he said that he felt castrated by her relentless criticism and bossiness. Woof. Yeah. So he is off the loving Patrizia train. And you can imagine what a mind fuck this is for Patrizia because... Their whole dynamic was him worshiping her and listening to her and trusting her. And like the fairy tale of their love story was about the fact that he was gonna give everything away to be with her. So they finally are achieving everything that she ever dreamed of and that he did too. And now he's just dumping her for no other reason than he just doesn't like her anymore. Okay, Andy, you know I love mobile games, but the thing they're always missing is a story. And you know I'm totally here for a great narrative. Yep, Match 3 games can be a lot of fun, but it seems like most of them are the
0: same. The themes and characters change, but overall it's the same boring format.
1: Until now. Switchcraft is a brand new take on Match 3 games. As you play, you unlock pieces of a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing,
0: choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative, and thousands of magical match-three
1: levels. Yep, Switchcraft is exactly what I've been looking for. All that awesome match-three gameplay but set in this incredibly compelling setting and story. I've honestly been playing for weeks now. Like After the kids go to bed, it's the perfect way to unwind. In Switchcraft, you take on
0: the role of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top academy of witchcraft. Play your way through hundreds of enchanting match-three levels, revealing a dark and winding mystery story. It all
1: starts with the disappearance of your best friend. Now it's up to you to unravel the mystery of her disappearance using your magical match-three skills. Along the way, you'll find unique characters, a great story, and even a little romance. The best part is that
0: your choices in the game determine the outcome of the story. So you're in the driver's seat. Download
1: Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery.
0: It's also like not her fault that he married someone like his father.
1: Yeah, it kind of makes sense, you
0: know. It totally makes sense.
1: Yeah, her, her whole world was collapsing. So she was like losing control, obviously, in her marriage. She didn't know what this meant for her daughters. She didn't know where she fit in the world anymore. Like, how can she be like the famous Signora Gucci if she's not a Gucci, you know? It was a really, really, really hard time, obviously, in Patrizia's life. And so she turned to her close friend, Pina Oriyama, in her despair, Pina was a Neapolitan woman whom Patrizia and Maurizio had met on vacation many years before. Both Patrizia and Maurizio believed in psychics and the tarot and things like that. And the Pina was allegedly very skilled at reading the tarot cards. That's kind of how they first all connected while they were on vacation. Okay. She also had a sarcastic body humor that Patrizia really enjoyed. The two eventually grew so close that Pina was actually at Patrizia's bedside when she gave birth to Allegra. Okay. Now, in Patrizia's darkest hour, Pina flew to be at her side and offer her solace. Patrizia would later say that Pina actually talked her out of committing suicide around this time. She said, Pina stayed by me in the moment of my deepest depression. She saved my life. Meanwhile, the separation and divorce were hardly Maurizio's only problem. Angered by the coup, Aldo and his sons had turned over a dossier to the authorities in June of 1985 that indicated that Maurizio had forged his father's signature on his share certificates in order to avoid paying inheritance tax. Oh my god, guys. Uh Uh-huh. Aldo wanted to stop Maurizio taking over Gucci by proving that he hadn't legitimately obtained his 50% stake in the company. So Domenico De Sole was over all of this, and he was kind of on Maurizio's side. So he's like, "You know what? Screw you. You only have an honorary title anyway. So guess what? You're not allowed in any of the Gucci offices anymore." And he literally like told security that Aldo wasn't allowed in the building anymore. Oh my god! Of course, this really pissed off Aldo. So he went to everybody's favorite backstabber, Paolo who was already angry with Maurizio for failing to follow through with some of the terms of that deal. Like he didn't end up getting like his own line or whatever, you know. So Aldo goes to Paolo and is like, screw Maurizio. Do you want to join me in trying to take him down? And Paolo's like, yeah, let's do it.
0: Paolo's just always thirsty for whatever, whatever war is brewing.
1: He's just like a Loki. He's like in it. Let's get into it. He's a little trouble. He's played by Jared Leto with a fat suit and a fake bald head.
0: No, I know. He looks like, I literally thought, I thought it was Jeffrey Tambor at first playing like an old (laughs) fat guy. And then I was like, what? I know. It's a
1: really ridiculous (laughs) casting, but that's who plays Paolo. He loves transformative roles though, Jared Leto. He really does. And I guess one of the reviews says that there's like this extraordinary scene where he like pisses on a Gucci scarf. Oh my God. Which now that I'm hearing the story kind of makes sense. So yeah, meanwhile, Maurizio and Patrizio did give their relationship one more shot by reuniting at Christmas of 1985, but the two fought so badly that they ended up getting into a physical altercation, which was not typical of their relationship. Maurizio yeah. had never otherwise been violent, but this time he actually picked up a tiny little Patrizia by her throat. Okay. Were the kids around too? I think that they were. It was Christmas. So that's terrifying. Those poor children. Also, poor Patrizio. He's like this tall man. And she is like not even. I think she was like 4'10", 4'11", or something. Wow. Yeah. So obviously, this was the end of them even trying. Patrizia wrote in her diary that that was when she knew for sure that her marriage was actually over. And She later said, what kind of jerk would dump his wife at Christmas? But like, what kind of jerk would assault his wife at Christmas, you know? Yeah, or anytime. Yeah, it gets worse. As he was leaving, he cruelly said to Alessandra, who I think was like around nine years old at the time, that he was leaving because daddy didn't love mommy anymore. Wow. Wow. Father of the year. Nice freaking Christmas present. I hope that you will pay for years and years of therapy, you dick.
0: Well, he needed therapy, in all honesty. Clearly. That's part of the problem here.
1: So the other Gucci's plotting against him did bear fruit the next year when a warrant was issued for Maurizio's arrest on a different charge. This was a charge of illegally purchasing his yacht, the Creole. Obviously, that was also his family trying to throw him under the bus. But his driver saw the cops going to his doorstep and was like, don't come home. I left the motorcycle out for you. Get on the motorcycle and drive straight to Switzerland where they won't extradite you back to Italy. So he did that and he managed to not get arrested and for a year lived in exile in Switzerland. Oh my God. Yeah, there's like this whole scene in the book, which I'm sure is going to be in the movie, where it's literally this like, drastic, like, run for Switzerland and hoping that the motorcycle helmet would make it so the police didn't recognize him and being at the border and, like, freaking out that he was going to have to lift up the helmet and they would see him at the border and arrest him there. But they didn't. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, obviously, he's in exile now. He's in Switzerland. He is really pissed off now. And he's like, I am going to figure out a way to get those mother effers out of my company. Which I totally do get. Like, how is anyone running a business right now with all of this drama going on? I don't understand how they're still in business. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> so eventually he reached out to this guy who worked at Morgan Stanley and he's like, look, this company's getting run into the ground by all of this infighting. I want you to basically be a shark and be my shark and let's figure out how we can buy out strategically all of their shares one by one until I have all the control and I can push Aldo out. And that's what we're going to do. So Morgan Stanley found an investment firm that wanted to buy Gucci called InvestCorp. And working through Morgan Stanley anonymously, they began, like I said, buying out the lesser shares from first the sons, which of course, guess who they went to first? Paolo. Of course. Of course. Paolo was like pissed off at Aldo for something else. Who knows at this point? And he's like, yeah, let's fuck my dad over. I'll sell my shares to you guys. I need some money anyway. And also like Aldo and Paolo both had messy romantic lives, as you can imagine, too. I'm just not getting into it because we have to keep this streamlined. But if you guys are interested, I do recommend reading the book House of Gucci. It's a great read.
0: Was it one of the other brothers that already got bought out for 20 million? I thought that was Paolo.
1: No, that was supposed to happen with Paolo, but his negotiations with Maurizio never came fully to fruition. Okay, cool. So then they moved on to Aldo's two other sons and eventually Aldo was put into a position where he was completely forced out. You know, he just had no choice but to sell his shares at that point. And he watched his life's work just slip away. And I think that this really affected him because he died less than a year after. Being forced out. It was like his work was his passion, you know? Yeah, his purpose of life is if they take that away from you. For the first time since Guccio Gucci started the business in 1921, outsiders had a significant stake in the once family business. So now InvestCorp owns 50% and Maurizio owns 50%. Okay. In 1989, Maurizio hired two Americans that would help usher in a new era at Gucci. Dawn Mello, the the at-the-time president of Bergdorf Goodman, she became the new creative director, and she hired an unknown young designer named Tom Ford as the lead designer. Crazy. Yeah. And also, guys, if that name sounds familiar to you, it is because Tom Ford did go on to be one of the most celebrated designers of our era, as well as a critically acclaimed filmmaker. We could do an entire podcast just on Tom Ford. Like, he was also... His like meeting story of his partner of a million years is so lovely. And he was in love with him for, I mean, his whole life basically. And like how he got to be from like just a kid in Austin, Texas to partying with Andy Warhol and then realizing his passion for fashion. It's just, it's really incredible. So Tom Ford's great. And at this point, he had only worked for one other designer in a junior role Dawn knew Tom Ford's, like, longtime partner, Richard Buckley, who was a famous fashion editor himself. And so they met and they were friendly. And she had a rule about never hiring anyone that she was social with and she was a friend with because it could affect the relationship. Yeah. But she made an exception because she knew how good Tom was. Yeah. So... The work that Don and Tom end up doing at Gucci becomes absolutely legendary. This was like an inspired hiring choice. It was one of the best things that Maurizio ever did for the company. But the company was in shambles by the time Don and Tom got there because there had been all this infighting. There had been no direction. It was just a mess. And it was financially a mess too. Sales numbers were falling. I mean, this was in big part to Maurizio slashing all of the canvas bags and some other really well-selling items. And apparently, a lot of these things had already been manufactured. So they had just tons of inventory that was like in storage units going unsold that he wouldn't let them sell. So yeah, it was a disaster. An InvestCorp rep said that in the span of just a few years, the company went from making $60 million to losing more than $60 million. Oh, Maurizio had cut... God. He had cut $100 million in sales and he had added another $30 million to expenses. Oh my God, $30 million to expenses. He got a fancy office. He was basically sponsoring everything. He was sponsoring yacht races and polo matches. He was trying to be so upscale and he was spending millions of dollars on these sponsorships as well. So it got so bad that Tom Ford, who was at that point only recently hired, almost jumped ship to go to Valentino, but he ended up staying out of loyalty to Don. Wow. So InvestCorp started getting up Maurizio's ass to hire a real CEO who knew what he was doing, but he refused. What InvestCorp didn't know at this time was that Maurizio was personally in debt in the tens of millions of dollars because he was also trying to... <laughs> Trying to fund a lot of this stuff himself, too, because if the board said no to him, he'd be like, well, I'll just do it with my own money. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't only that. He was also facing criminal charges for forging his father's will that did end up going to court. And what about
0: being violent towards his wife? Were there any charges about that?
1: No, because that just- Patrizia never reported it. Okay. Okay. She later told people about the incident, and she told the author of this book, but she did not report it to the police. Okay. So yeah, they found out about the legal issues pretty quick. Of course, the case went to trial in December of 1989, and despite having witnesses testify to witnessing the forging, oh my and God. a forensic handwriting expert confirm that the signature was forged, Mauricio was shockingly acquitted. Oh the prosecutor oh my was furious. Yeah, he said in all of his years of practice, he had never seen a verdict so wrong. And he alluded to the fact that there was obviously some corruption. You think? In 1990, on a personal note, life got a lot better for Maurizio when he met Paola Francki at a private party in St. Moritz. Paola was a former model who was tall, blonde, thin, and super easygoing with a relaxed manner and a kind smile. Oh
0: the exact opposite of his wife. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: think that was a big part of the appeal, to be honest. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yes, exactly. On their first date, something about her just made him open up and they end up going out for drinks and talking until the sun came up. And Paola said that she found in him this beautiful, vulnerable man who was put in this position of trying to hold this company together. And he just kind of like unleashed and like let everything out to her. And she had this kind of like nurturing aura where she was like, just tell me everything. It's I'll be there for you, you know? And she didn't try to fix it. She didn't try to, you know, tell him he's an idiot and he should have been doing it differently. She just was like comforting, you know? Yeah. So obviously, Maurizio fell for that. He just needed that energy in his life. Yeah. So they soon moved in together with her. She was also recently separated. She had a son named Charlie from her first marriage. They moved in together with her son, Charlie, into an opulent 13,000-square-foot, two-story apartment on one of the ritziest streets in Milan. Casual. Of course, Patrizia soon found out about the relationship and the living arrangements, and she was incensed. They are not legally divorced at this point.
0: Is he taking care of her?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just about okay. to get into it. Okay, he cool. was giving her over a hundred grand a month.
0: <laughs> in like the 90s.
1: In the 90s. Wow. But that wasn't enough for Patrizia. She wanted the St. Moritz house that came with some adjoining cottages. Maurizio refused, saying that he and Paola were going to keep and redecorate them. Oh, my God. Yeah. So now she's thinking. Everything that I did, I, she wanted those houses. That was her happy place. She decorated everything to her vision. And he's going, well, me and my new girlfriend are going to rip everything you did out. And we're going to have a great time doing it. Just go buy something new. Yeah. Don't take where they had family happy vacations for so many years. Oh so fuck. Oh boy. Yeah. So Patricia became so enraged at this that she threatened to burn the house down, going so far as to ask one of the servants to prepare two tanks of gasoline. And they're like, uh, I don't think so. And she's like, just, just put them by the house. I'll take care of everything else. Don't worry. Just get the gasoline, put it by the house, <laughs> turn your back, and then ignore d- the fire. Walk away. I got this. Wisely, the servant refused. Patrizia became fixated on Maurizio's assets, demanding deeds. She wanted property. She yeah, began obsessing about the yacht. Like she wanted the yacht. He, of course, wasn't going to give her the yacht. Then she was like finding out through other people that he was redecorating everything. And now he doesn't have any money. And she, he basically was paying her all this money. And sometimes he had to borrow money from other people. Like he borrowed something like, 20 grand from his driver, his driver to pay Patrizia one month. So she's like, wait a minute, if you are so broke, you're not getting me all the money that you promised me, but you're like decorating your yacht, then we have a problem. Where's his money coming from? How are you spending it? Why aren't you spending it on your children? You know? So at this point, she gets so angry that she tries to hire her housekeeper's boyfriend to kill him. (laughs) and the housekeeper's boyfriend is like, absolutely not. So the housekeeper gave the boyfriend Maurizio's attorney's number, and so they didn't go to the police. They went to Maurizio's attorney, and they said, hey, we think she might be trying to plot a hit. It was kind of casual, though, so we don't know for sure, but Maurizio needs to know.
0: As casual as a hit
1: can be. Yes. And for whatever reason, they did not, at this point, take that very seriously. That same fall, Patrizia began to have debilitating headaches. The following May of 1992, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Oh, man. Yeah, so it was later found to be benign, but they actually did not know that at the beginning. They thought it might be malignant, and it was rather large. So they needed to perform life-saving surgery right away, and there was a big possibility that she wasn't going to survive this. And this made Patrizia even more angry because she thought this was Maurizio's fault for causing such stress in her life. Okay. So at this point, she grew even more bitter. She thought he had taken everything from her and now he was going to rob her of her life as well. So Patrizia did wake up from a successful surgery but she was crestfallen to find out that Maurizio had not come to visit her. Like even as angry as she was at him, somewhere in the back of her head, she imagined something so dire, like a brain tumor, would somehow bring him back to loving and caring for her. And I think she had some sort of fantasy that she would wake up and he'd be there and be like, wow, I've been so dumb and I almost lost you, you know? Yeah. He didn't come. I guess like, he sent flowers and she was, like, so pissed off. She just destroyed them. Yeah. So that really hurt. She really thought that, like, even if he didn't love her, like, a woman or a wife anymore, that he would have paid his respects as her being the mother of his children, yes. at least. Yes. You know? Yeah. But he didn't care. And they had such a long relationship. Yeah. He he didn't care. And she had like a harder road to recovery. Nobody recovers easily from brain surgery. Yeah, so it was months and months of coalescing. And, you know, she was having some epileptic fits while she was recovering. This is not an easy road for her. And I think that as she was kind of stuck recuperating, she got angrier and angrier and began to plot revenge. And she wrote in her diary, Vendetta. I forgot that Vendetta is not just for the downtrodden, but also for the angels. Get your revenge because you are right. Be uncompromising because you have been offended. Superiority doesn't mean letting it all go, but finding the best way to humiliate him and free yourself. We've said it before. Hell hath no fury like an Italian woman scorned. Like an Italian
0: woman scorned. That's right.
1: We have said that in a previous episode. I think it was the fighting chimpanzees episode. One of those guys, his girlfriend turned him in, remember? Yep. Oh my God, whoa. So she began also recording hateful messages towards him on a tape recorder and then taking the little cassette out and sending it to him. like Mel Gibson, voicemail style. Yes. Yes, exactly like that. And, you know, Mauricio was getting so pissed, he would, like, take the cassette out and, like, throw it on the ground and, like, stomp it. And his attorney at that point was like, I don't know. I think she's really unhinged. And she tried to hire, you know, some housekeeper's boyfriend to kill you. Like, maybe you should get a bodyguard. And Mauricio was like, no, I'm not going to play into her hysterics. I don't think she's actually going to do anything. She just likes creating drama in my life. And the best thing I can do is just ignore it, you know? So I'm just going to ignore it. And that was his way of dealing with it. He really just wanted to move on. He wanted to put everything behind him.
0: He wanted to have his perfect life with his new family. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And not have yeah, to deal with did. any of the drama. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I can understand That he's had a lot of drama in his life, so maybe he's trying to streamline. But still, you have to give the mother of your children a certain level of respect. Yeah. And it's not like you were just, you know, A, never married to her, B, only married to her for a couple of years. Like
0: you said, it was 13 years, right?
1: Yeah, 13 years. But he made her a really, really good offer. Maurizio offered Patrizia the Milan penthouse, the Fifth Avenue penthouse, Over $3 million in 1990s money, which would be more like $5.7 million today. Over $16,000 a month for the girls and an apartment in Monte Carlo for her mother to live in. But Patrizia did not say yes to this deal. She instead went on a popular Italian daytime talk show, dripping in jewels, and called the settlement offer a plate of lentils. He offers me a plate of lentils.
0: I mean, I guess that's a little better than beans. Yes. Like, you know, <laughs> like it's like a little bit better.
1: So, marizzo like I said, he was just tired of fighting and he was tired of fighting with Patrizia, but he was also tired of answering to his angry investors about Gucci's plummeting sales numbers. Yeah. In late 1993, after a myriad of failed attempts to retain his position and also save Gucci from disaster... Maurizio finally gave up the ghost. Investcorp bought out his shares, paying off all of his debts and putting more than $100 million in his pocket. So they own the company now. 100% That's of it. so sad. For the first time in its history since Guccio Gucci, his grandfather, started the company. It was not owned by a Gucci.
0: I mean, it's probably better for the company, but it's just sad that the family couldn't figure it out.
1: Guccio must be, like, rolling in his grave, watching them fight at this I board know. meeting, seeing what happened to all of his descendants. I know. It's It, it really is. No bueno. No. <laughs> yeah, and Maurizio was obviously upset. But you know, it was kind of one of those things where the worst of it is when you're going through it. And when the worst happens, which he always thought his company being taken away from him would be the worst thing in the world. When it finally does happen, you've actually already felt all the feelings during it. And you're actually just kind of relieved.
0: So he was relieved after?
1: He was relieved. I think that he had felt all the despair and the depression and the angst like during all of the stuff because it was years of him fighting now with the InvestCorp people who were trying to replace him and fighting with Patrizia and fighting with his, you know, cousins and his uncles. And all of that had taken such a toll that by the time it actually came to it, they worked out a nice financial deal for him. And he was like, I'll take it and I can start over. However, Patrizia was not over it. When she found out what he had done, she went through the roof. She called him. She was like, you idiot. How could you have done this? Like, she was so angry with him. And of course, she felt like this is because he lost direction. Like, this is because he stopped trusting me. This is because he got out of our marriage. And now, no Gucci owns Gucci. He gave everything up her friend Pina later said, for Patrizia, Gucci represented everything. It was money. It was power. It was an identity for her and the girls. Yeah. And she also thought that Alessandra and Allegra were going to inherit Gucci, you know? Not anymore. On November 19th, 1994, the divorce was finalized with Patrizia netting nearly $1.5 million a year in alimony. She was also ordered to stop using the Gucci surname, but she continued to do so saying, I still feel like a Gucci. In fact, the most Gucci of them all. (laughs) Oh my God. And Maurizio was finally free. He was truly free the way he had told Patrizia he wanted to be. He could build a life with Paola, and he began investing in multiple new businesses. He had an entirely new lease on life without the acrimony of his marriage and the intense pressure of running a multi-million dollar corporation. He was committed to Paola, and he asked his attorney to begin drafting papers to include her in his will. Though some close friends of Maurizio said that he never planned to remarry, Paola told others that they were actually planning a Christmas wedding in St. Moritz with a horse-drawn sleigh. When Patrizia heard rumors that they might be getting married, she became obsessed with the idea that they could potentially have a baby together a new family and heir would cut her daughter's inheritance in half. Or, I mean, she could fear that he could just decide, I like my new family better and they get everything and my first two daughters are out, you know? So, I mean, at this point, yeah, he had taken away his love and admiration. He had robbed her of her social positioning. He had lost Gucci And he had even stripped her of her name. So this last straw was that he was going to start fucking with her kid's money. Yeah. Patrizia was not going to let that happen. On March 27th, 1995, roughly five months after the divorce was finalized, Maurizio was on top of the world. He woke up in his sumptuous Milan apartment with Paola at his side, and the two breakfasted together before making plans for lunch. Maurizio then left to go to his office a little after eight thirty that morning, Maurizio entered his building and greeted the doorman, fifty one year old Giuseppe Orinato. As he strode up the staircase toward his office, a dark-haired man in an overcoat stepped through the door and pulled out a gun. Before Giuseppe could react, the man shot Maurizio in the back three times. The first bullet hit Maurizio's right hip. The second entered under his left shoulder and the third grazed his arm. The bullets ended up kind of like spinning him around. And so the doorman would later say that he had this look of complete disbelief on his face. For sure. Like he had this dawning realization of everything that was happening and he couldn't believe that it was happening. And then he just collapsed. And I guess he wasn't very far up the staircase because then the gunman you know, climbed the the couple stairs and delivered a fatal shot to his right temple. Shit. Yeah. And so this poor doorman, Giuseppe, is just watching in horror as this goes down. And he's goes a doorman. Goes to, he's not
0: a security guard, right? No,
1: he's just a doorman. Yeah. And so this guy is going to leave and he like turns around and realizes there's a witness. And so he shoots Giuseppe twice too. And thankfully, Giuseppe survived, but he had complications from his gunshot wounds for the rest of his life.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: Maurizio Gucci was dead. When Paola heard the news, she immediately fled to the scene. Like, she had heard that he had been shot. She didn't know at that point if he was dead or alive. Yeah. So she, like, literally put a coat over her nightgown and ran to his office, but one of their mutual friends was already there. And he's like, Paola, do not go in there. He didn't make it. You don't want to see his body. And she was just hysterical. So the friend took her back to their apartment and put her into bed. Meanwhile, Patricia wrote in her journal that day, paradisos, meaning paradise in Greek. At three o'clock that very same day, she went with her attorney and eldest daughter to Paula and Maurizio's apartment to knock on the door saying that she wanted to discuss legal issues. Naturally, Paola is like, no, you can't come in. One of her servants, like, refused them entry. And at that point, Alessandra started crying and just begging Paola to give something of Maurizio's to her. She's like, I just want something of my dad's to remember him by. Like some article of his clothing. Ugh, poor girl. So... Paola is like, I'm not letting your mother and her attorney in, but here's one of his cashmere sweaters. You can have this, you know? And so then Paola went back to bed because she was obviously mourning. But the next morning, Patrizia returned with a court official who had arrived to seal off the house based on a court sequester filed by the heirs of Gucci at 11 a.m. the previous day. So she had filed to kick... Paola out of what she said was her daughter's property only two and a half hours after Maurizio had been gunned down.
0: That's some fast work. Fast work.
1: Paola was aghast. I mean, she has been with this man for years at this point. Her son lives here, this is her home, and his crazy ex wife is just waltzing in here saying, get out. So she got her attorney and she's like, is there anything I can do here? And Maurizio's attorney is like, he was going to put you in the will, but we never finalized it. So Alessandra and Allegra get everything. And at this point, I think Alessandra was over 18, but Allegra was still a teenager. So it basically is being controlled by Patrizia. Wow. Yeah. So Paola had to GTFO. She got kicked to the curb. Totally kicked to the curb. She and her son had to go live with a friend. And poor Paula. It turns out she did end up having a, a lovely life later on. But this was just the beginning of some hardships for her. Later on, when her son was only a teenager, he committed suicide as well.
0: Oh my God, no.
1: Yeah, she had an absolutely tragic life. But from what I read... She did end up very happily remarried and I think she launched a second career and she did end up as happy as she could be. Although, of course, she had lost a partner and much more importantly than that, her only child, so. Yeah. Poor Paola. She didn't even actually go to Maurizio's funeral because Patrizia arranged everything and it became the Patrizia show. Apparently, she like acted full on fashion widow. She wore like a veil over like big dark sunglasses and black leather gloves and a black suit. And, you know, she was very fashionable and she like arranged the whole thing. But when she came out, there was a ton of journalists outside of his funeral. And she said very flippantly to them, on a human level, I'm sorry. On a personal level, I can't say the same thing.
0: And no one's suspect of her being behind the murder.
1: Well, obviously, a lot of people were. Paolo was. A lot of his close friends were... And the police did look into her right away. Clearly, she wasn't the gunman. They knew that because they had a witness. And they couldn't find any connections. So they're thinking, they also don't know because Maurizio did have some business enemies. He had made a lot of bad deals. He had screwed people over. Think about all the shit he had gone through with his family, you know? So, well, it seemed like the obvious choice was Patrizia. There was still the potential that it could have been somebody else. The one thing that the police thought for sure was that it was a professional hitman. By the way, the guy, you know, fired and his shots hit and everything. So they thought, you know what? We'll get informants out and we'll make sure that they're keeping their ears open and they hear anyone bragging about taking out Gucci. Then we'll know. And then also every time they arrested any sort of mafioso or drug dealer or anything, they would also question them if they knew anything about who was hired to kill Maurizio Gucci. But for almost two years, I think it ended up being something like maybe 20 months or something, they didn't hear anything. So they were like, kind of, it wasn't cold at that point, but it was just like they weren't getting anywhere until one day, an anonymous call came in that blew the case wide open. A man said that his landlord and friend had confided in him that he had set up the hit that killed Gucci. People can't
0: keep their mouths shut.
1: They really can't. They really can't. And this is why. So basically, this guy had been down on his luck. He had been out of a job. He didn't have any money. So he convinced his landlord that he was a exiled... South American drug lord who actually had millions of dollars, but it was just tied up in the United States. And that when the legal mess was all sorted out, he was going to be able to pay this guy. The the landlord's name was Savioni, Ivano Savioni. And the informant guy, the one who's telling on him must have been very compelling because Savioni believed it. Like I always say, hook, line and sinker. And so when he's like, well, I have also been involved with crime. Like, I helped set up the hit that killed Maurizio Gucci. So this guy is like, okay, well, tell me more. So Savioni said that Patrizia Reggiani had ordered the murder to the tune of 600 million lira, which is about $375,000 at this time. Her longtime friend, Pina, had helped her and acted as an intermediary, introducing her to Savioni and funneling money and information between Patrizia and the killers. So Savioni went to a man who owned a pizzeria named Orazio Sicala, who was in mountains of debt due to his gambling addiction. And he kind of said, will you kill Maurizio Gucci? And he said, no, but I do need money. I can get somebody to kill him. Orazio became the getaway driver and he found the trigger man, a former mechanic named Benedetto, who lived behind the pizzeria. Wow. So they were wrong in far as this was not really a professional. I mean, Benedetto must have had really good aim for a layman, huh? Yeah, but I mean, he had four shots. He did. And he, was, he wasn't that far away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's not a professional.
0: And then two shots to another dude that he only killed one of the two. I'd say uh, that's, that's true, why. yeah.
1: So then Savioni told the informant that they were all getting really like disgruntled because Patricia was living like a queen in that palatial apartment. She has hundreds of millions of dollars now and they had already run through their blood money. So they're like, we did all the work and she's reaping all the benefit. We want more money from that bitch.
0: Yeah, but you should have arranged that before you killed someone.
1: Yeah, but there's not exactly honor among thieves. Of course they can go back to her and say, give me more money, you know? So at that point, the informant went to the police and he was like, I don't want to be involved in any of this. If you can help me, I will do whatever I can to help you. And so the police helped him get a job and find a place to live in exchange for going undercover. Yeah. Okay. So basically what they did was that they had an undercover agent go in with the original guy who was pretending to be a South American drug lord already. And they had the undercover police officer pretend to be a Colombian assassin who had killed more than a hundred people in South America. Okay. And yeah, the first guy was like, hey, I know you have that problem. Wink, wink. He's visiting me from my old life. He's a cold-blooded killer and he will go to that woman And he will get more money out of her or kill her if she doesn't. Okay. And Savioni totally believed it. So he was like, oh, this is great. This is the answer to our problems. You know what? You two, I got to make some phone calls. I got to call Pina and tell her that we're going to take this bitch out. Why don't you guys go have lunch? Here's some money. Take my car. So they drive his car away to the police station and just bug the whole thing, of course. Oh, my God. And then they tap everybody's phone lines. So they tap Patrizia's, Pina's, Savioni's, and the other two guys. They tap all of their phone lines. And they got so much information, especially between Savioni and Pina. They talked about how they weren't getting enough money. And then Savioni bitched at her like, well, at least you're getting a stipend. Because I guess Pina was getting... $1,600 $1,600 a month continuously for what she did for the connection. And she was like, oh, that's hardly enough to live on. And so they're all like bitching about it up and down. And they managed to, between all of the co-conspirators, absolutely get a full picture of the murder and they would be able to prove it in court. Okay. The only person that did not incriminate herself was Patricia.
0: Of course, because she's a professional.
1: She was way too smart to say anything on the phone that would incriminate herself whatsoever. Nonetheless, they were like, we've got enough with everybody else. So all four were arrested on January 31st, 1997 with Patrizia going to jail in a fur coat, jewelry, and a full face of makeup. Wow. Yeah, the police officers went to her mother and they were like, please tell your daughter that she's not going to want to wear thousands of dollars of jewelry into the prison. It's not going to work out. She was like, no, I am. No, she's, this is a part of me. In March of 1998, Pina finally threw her friend and benefactress under the bus after 15 months of stony silence and loyalty. She agreed to testify against Patrizia after Patrizia had slipped her a note in prison saying that if she claimed all responsibility for the murder, she'd line her jail cell with gold. So this insulted Pina. She scoffed to the press. I'm an old woman and I'm going to be here a long time. What good is $1.5 million, which I guess is what she offered her, if I'm going to be in jail? So she's like, screw this bitch. I'm going to turn her in. Oh, my God. The media was highly anticipating the June 1998 trial. They dubbed it the O.J. Simpson trial of Italy. And they were also specifically looking forward to a showdown between the two women that they called the Black Widow, Patrizia, and the Black Witch, Pina, earning her moniker for her penchant for the tarot cards. In the end, there was no real showdown. Both women just refused to look at the other one. So the trial got rolling and the prosecutors contended that Patrizia was motivated by greed, jealousy, and revenge. She was bitter that Maurizio had left her and then lost his stake in Gucci. She was jealous of Paula and worried that the couple would get married and produce an heir that would compete with her daughters. Also, if Maurizio had married Paola, it may have cut down Patrizia's alimony from $1.5 million a year to something closer to $860,000 which is still a mind-boggling amount, (laughs) especially because we're still in the 90s here. Wow. All of Patrizia's co-conspirators testified against her with Pina saying that Patrizia tortured her daily, constantly badgering her to find somebody to kill Maurizio. In her defense, Patrizia claimed the line that she wrote in her journal on the day of his death, Paradisos, was actually just part of like a writing exercise that she was writing a manuscript. She Uh said it had nothing to do with Maurizio's death. Okay. She did admit that she felt cheated by the divorce. She wanted deeds to some of the properties instead of just money. Patrizia said that Maurizio gave her the bones so he didn't have to give her the chicken. Wow. Her with all her metaphors. I know. I kind of love it. Patrizia claimed all innocence of the entire murder plot saying that Savioni and Pina set up the hit on their own and then extorted Patrizia for the money after the fact saying that they did her a favor, that they knew she was going to get a payday and that she better pony up the money to them or they were going to go to the police because no one would believe she didn't order the hit. Yeah. To that the prosecutors brought up the fact that Pina and Patricia had gone on several vacations, been spotted shopping together, and their phone records showed that they had spent hours talking since the murder. So the prosecutor's like, that's a very weird way to treat somebody who is blackmailing and extorting you. Yeah. And she's like, mm, whatever, you know. Ultimately, the judge and jury just didn't buy what Patrizia was selling. And they brought down the gavel on her co-conspirators as well. Pina was given 25 years in prison. Yikes. Savioni, 26. Erasio Sicala, the getaway driver, was given 29 years. Shit. Yeah. And Benedetto, the killer, got a life sentence. Okay. Patrizia only got 29 years, the same as the friggin' getaway driver. So I think we can tell who had the best attorneys here. I think we can. I think, I think we can. So Patrizia appealed several times to overturn her conviction. Daughter Allegra even went to law school in an attempt to help her mother. One appeal was based on the fact that she had had the brain tumor that affected her judgment. And there was still, obviously, I mean, when you have major brain surgery, you're altered forever. So that was, a, I think, a pretty good appeal. Yeah. But in the end, her conviction was upheld. However, her sentence was reduced to 26 years. After fighting constantly with the other inmates, Patrizia was transferred to another facility in 2000, where she did attempt suicide by hanging herself with a bedsheet. She survived and she was eventually returned to her original prison where she resumed her close friendship with Pina of all people.
0: I mean, that makes sense, though.
1: Yeah, they ended up being prison besties. Good. In 2005, against prison policy, she was allowed to keep and care for a pet ferret named Bambi. Shut up. No. In 2011, you're going to love this, she once again made headlines when she refused to be paroled into a work release program saying, I've never worked a day in my life. Why would I start now? Because you're in
0: prison, my love. Because you're in prison. You're in prison. I'm sure you didn't wear orange before you got there either. You know?
1: Oh, my goodness. She remained in jail for five more years instead of doing the work release program. Oh, my God. She was eventually released in October 2016 after serving 18 years. She got off early because of good behavior. Well, minus the work program thing. Yes. After her release, she was seen often shopping the finest streets of Milan with a parrot on her shoulder. A parrot, not a ferret? Apparently, it has to rhyme. I had to, like, double check that one, too, because I was like, well, was it Bambi? Was it a ferret? And people are just assuming it's a parrot. But no, she only had erret pets. Oh, my God. When asked by a journalist why she hadn't just shot Maurizio herself, she said, my eyesight is not so good. I didn't want to miss. So after she got out, she got a job working as a consultant for an Italian jewelry company. But they later said that they had to keep her away from the computers because in her first week, she somehow managed to delete the company's entire database. They were like, it's not really her fault. When she went to jail, there was barely fax machines. And now, you know... (laughs) There's all these computers. So now we just don't let her go near the computers. Wow. Alessandra and Allegra supported their mother for a long time. But when Patrizia was released, she tried to get her hands back on an annuity from Maurizio's estate that was promised to her in the divorce. Her daughters naturally didn't think that she deserved it after, you know, getting their father killed. But Patrizia won in court and still earns $1.47 million annually from the Gucci estate. Wow. As a result, Allegra and Alessandra no longer speak to their mother and are both now married with children in Switzerland. According to an editorialist article by Marissa Petrarca, the daughters share the now $400 million Gucci fortune. Holy shit. Yeah, it seems like they must have made some good investments because I think he had $100 million when he died. Yeah. Tom Ford and Domenico de Sol went on to be a huge powerhouse team in Gucci and fashion in general. They successfully avoided a hostile takeover by Louis Vuitton Moet Tennessee in the early 2000s by partnering with billionaire Francois-Henri Pinot, who happens to be Selma Hayek's husband. Tom and Domenico remain a team to this day. Tom Ford started his own incredibly successful label, and Domenico is the chairman of the board. Awesome. Sadly, Tom lost his partner of 35 years, famous editor Richard Buckley, this past September. So sad. They're really cute. You guys should Google them. They're a cute love story. So the Wikipedia fun fact is all about the cast of Ridley Scott's new movie called House of Gucci based on the book that I used for our source this week. It is scheduled to be released on November 24th. So in exactly one week, y'all. Wow. I can't believe November 24th is one week. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? You'll be with me then. I will. Yeah. Is it a streamer or is it a theater? No, it's a super bummer. I looked this up because I wanted to watch it with you. We might have to like figure out, well, we're not going to. I was like, we got to figure out how to like sneak away for a matinee or something. But with all the babies, there's no way it's going to happen. They said that it will probably be streaming on Paramount Plus at some point, but I could not find a date for sure, which is so annoying. I was hoping it was going to be like HBO Max that day, you know? Yeah,
0: there'll be some fun movies that come out during that weekend on streaming for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love Thanksgiving weekend for movies. We have to get our hits in. We do. We do. So we'll see. I really, really want to see it. Lady Gaga is playing Patricia, like I said, and apparently early reviews are saying that she could win an Oscar for her portrayal. mm So the real life Patrizia was not a fan of the casting. Though she admitted that she thought that there was a resemblance between her and Lady Gaga, she thought that Lady Gaga should have reached out to her for research and the fact that she didn't means it's going to be a terrible portrayal.
0: Wait, why didn't she though? I don't know. I feel like someone that you're playing is alive. Like if you're a real method actor, you do that.
1: I would say so too, but apparently she didn't. So Patricia talked to Us Magazine or some other magazine. I know it was reported in Us Magazine that she was not a fan. Oh, <laughs> she was a little salty about it. Yeah. Apparently, Ridley Scott had wanted to do this movie forever, but he said he could never do it before now because he hadn't been able to find his Patrizia. And he met Gaga and he was like, that's it. She's the one. Like, we don't, we're not trying out anyone else for this role. Wow. Yep. Adam Driver is also earning raves as Maurizio. And supposedly the chemistry between the leads is electric. It's supposed to be on fire. That's the same thing as the what's, what was the
0: other movie she did?
1: Oh, the Bradley Cooper! They were like
0: canoodling a on Stars the piano.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Adam Driver is such a good actor. Yeah, he's amazing. I think he could work with anyone and make it electric. He made it electric with Lena Dunham and Girls. You know, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it's gonna be great. Al Pacino plays Aldo. Yep. Of course, we talked about Jared Leto playing. We need Paolo. a Pacino in there. Of course, we do. Jeremy Irons plays. Rodolfo, and Selma Hayek, who of course has her own connection to the real life Gucci drama, plays Pina, which I think is very generous casting because Pina was not a beautiful woman. Oh, really? Well, they described her as being beautiful in her youth. But by the time she went to trial, she looked like she had had a hard life and she was not like still beautiful in her 50s. They called her a witch, right? Yeah, which is not not the case with Selma Hayek. (laughs) That's number two. We had two Princess Bride quotes (laughs) this episode. Woo! Yeah, so they're saying that this movie is murderously delicious, and I'm excited to see it. So, you know, we'll keep you posted. If you guys go to the theater and see it, please let us know how it is, because I'm really excited. In conclusion, maybe don't give any of your shares away to your ungrateful children. They don't deserve it. They'll stab you right in the back.
0: Also, I feel like, I mean, you know, he did the job, but pizza parlor, assassin. Maybe you just don't hire a hitman to, you know.
1: Altogether, I think the moral of this story is not to hire a hitman. Because in general, thou shalt not kill.
0: Especially like insulting pizza like that, you know?
1: Exactly. Put a bad taste in everyone's mouth. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.